Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. This week's podcast first began as a sequel to our Irma Web episode from a few weeks ago, which featured Adam Neiman and Beatrice Loeza joining us for a discussion about Olivia Asayas's new HBO show. We'd only seen four episodes at the time, and we wanted to reconvene the group now that the miniseries has bowed out with eight episodes. But as we were talking about all the film within a film rabbit holes of Irma Vep, its commentaries on autofiction and autourism, how it blurs the lines between reality, narrative, and fantasy, we realized that it seemed to echo the themes of another HBO show that everyone has been talking about lately, The Rehearsal by Nathan Fielder. So this week, we bring you a double dose of meta, Irma Vep and The Rehearsal. And the ethics of making movies about oneself, other people, and about movies. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. It is late in New York. It is late enough that I'm very grateful that my two compatriots on the podcast today, whom you've heard from before on the Film Comment podcast, are here to join me to talk about all things movies about movies. Although... Maybe even the term movie is a bit loosely, very loosely applied here. Before we dig too deep, I'd love our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, Beatrice. Hello, uh, Beatrice. I am a critic, work at Criteria and editor at Criterion, and I have thoughts about Irma Up. <laughs> more thoughts. Yes, more thoughts. Uh, and? Uh, I'm Adam. I'm a critic and author based in Toronto. I just put a small baby to bed and excited to talk about uh, Irma Vep again with these guys. Yes. So if you're a devoted follower of the Film Common podcast, which I hope you are, you'll know that a few weeks ago we recorded a podcast about Irma Vep with Adam and Beatrice. At that point, we'd watched four episodes. Now we've watched the remaining four. So I wanted to reconvene all of us together uh, to see how our opinions had changed or broadened or, or become complicated. I will say a note, a somber note regarding the absence of my co-host here, Clinton Crude. Unfortunately, he is on vacation, enjoying a beautiful sunny beach somewhere. And so I'm left to do this alone. But Adam and Beatrice will make this less painful than if it were just me. So, yeah, Irma Webb, and then we want to talk about Nathan Fielder's rehearsal. How do all these connect? You will find out eventually. <laughs> Beatrice and Adam. Uh, maybe, Adam, let's start with you. Irma Webb, you had also only seen four episodes when we last talked. You were a big fan of the show. You wrote a great piece in The Ringer, you know, kind of championing it. What did you think of the last four episodes? Um, I, I liked the last four episodes. I thought that, you know, when we last left off, we had such an interesting chat, I thought, you know, um, for people whose opinion on the show was not exactly equal, right, in terms of liking or disliking or what worked or what didn't, but it's such a, a multifaceted show, it sort of seemed like we got at all the different aspects of it, and then I think those aspects have only multiplied since then, right? You know, there are a couple of things in those last four episodes, formally and narratively, that are sort of outrageous. We had, we had to downplay the fact that there was like a Maggie Chung analog in the show when this first this podcast can be spoiler happened. Free because, yeah, it can yeah, be spoiler free because it's over now. 
So we had we had to allude to that. And in alluding to that, you're also alluding to the peril of writing about a show in real time, because there were, I thought, some very thoughtful, perfectly well-intentioned pieces in the first half of Irma Vep's run saying, well, how can you replace Maggie Chung with Alicia Vikander? And why are you replacing an Asian actress with a with a white actress, which are valid, but became, I wouldn't say invalid, but were intensely complicated as the show went on, right? It wasn't a simple substitution. And if anything, the way that the Maggie Chung stand-in Jade hangs over and engages in the last few episodes, it's not a subplot. It's kind of what I think a lot of the show became about, right? And so I, I... I was very into the last four episodes. My jaw hit the floor a couple times. I, I maybe I'll I'll put this to you guys to talk about, but you know there was at least one episode I thought that if this show was at all more popular, would have been a discourse monster. The whole episode, uh, you know, about onset sensitivity and about you know you know staging and directorial fetishism and all that, which on a more popular show I think would have had lots and lots of essays and and, and morning after quarterbacking, but kind of passed without a lot of notice. And I I thought the ending was really beautiful, which maybe we'll kind of uh, you know get to. But I'm I'm pro Irmavep overall, and certainly I like the last four episodes. All right. Beatrice, uh, so you were the probably the least warm on the show when we talked last. Um, any any dramatic changes in your assessments? <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I probably am I'm still sort of just warm on it. Um, yeah. But I I love thinking about it, and and I know that SIS would probably like that. Um, but I do agree with Adam about the ending. I also thought the ending was very beautiful. Uh, you know. I, it comes kind of contrary to the idea of a big payoff and like the conventional sense that you see on like big series, you know, this idea that you have to feel satisfied at the end of a show because of some big moment it presents, you know, I, I feel like Irma Vep ended with this sense of resignation and a sort of mournful air, um, which I, which I liked, you know, it, it kind of owned the fact that it, that it was ending and, and, this little discrete universe that it created is, is ending and the movie and, and or no, not the movie, the series and, and the series makers, you know, continue in new directions. You know, Mira, Alicia Vikander's character ultimately takes on some sort of new prestige project and, you know, new directions, but also very cyclical ones. You know, um, there's this new actress, I think towards the end, that's kind of held up as being some sort of you know, next person in line. That's sort of the sense I, I got from it. Um, and I could also couldn't help but notice that when the actual shoot within the film ends, you know, we see title cards for another, the next Fouillard project after the Vampire Judex. Um, so it's like, you know, it, it kind of straddled that, you know, the, the cyclical nature of just like movie making, but then the fact that it also, each one sort of ends and it comes to a closure in, in a way that's, that's, more complicated than just like the big, you know, final money shot, big bang kind of scenario, which which yeah. I liked. Yeah, I think I maybe have had the most dramatic then change in response because I loved the first four episodes. I mean, I was just like enamored with what the show was doing. I thought it was so intelligent and layered, which I still think, I mean, I, I think SIS really sustains that all through the end, like it is so kaleidoscopic and the layers are just, you can spend all night peeling them. And what I really loved about it is is the elephant in the room that we were dancing around last time is that it 
explicitly thematizes the role of Maggie Chung in the original Irma Vep, how she herself was this Chinese actress brought in to portray like a French sort of icon. And then she's being replaced by a Swedish American actress, which Alicia Vikander in a scene sort of, uh, which I thought was interesting. Like she brought herself into it in one of the last few episodes, you know, referenced her own biography. And yeah, like you were saying, Adam, like everyone, even now I'm seeing reactions on Twitter who from people who start the series and they're like, well, how can I enjoy this? Like, you know, how can anyone replace Maggie Chung, least of all Alicia Vikander? That is the show, right? And what I was really fascinated by was that it seemed like Asayas was grappling with what it makes to have this relationship with a movie that's very much rooted in desire. And that desire can be uncategorizable. It can be sort of you know, inappropriate in, in certain ways, because that's when you desire someone like it, it's very hard to kind of, you know, uh, it spills over, right? It's very hard to like contain your or follow the right path. And so in this case, he's grappling with, you know, what does fetishism look, look like? What, what would it mean to cast a Chinese actress in this role? Um, and what does it mean that that would remind him of Maggie Chung? Like, that's maybe kind of racist in itself, right? To think that any Chinese actress in that role would remind him of, like, his ex-wife who played that iconic role. But also you sort of understand what he's getting at because that's kind of sometimes how our associations work with objects of loss or grief. And so I thought that that was like some of the most audacious stuff honestly that had seen in tv in a bit but also in like autofiction you know it, it the whole series to me unfolded like that and what maybe the last four episodes lost out for me is really interrogating those impulses in the way that I thought the first four episodes were setting up and there is a particular scene that really I found disappoint, disappointing where there is this confrontation. There's a big spoiler. So if you haven't gotten that far, maybe maybe pause. Uh, where uh, Mira Harburg, the Alicia Vikander character, actually confronts this sort of ghost of Jade Lee, who's the stand-in for Maggie Chung. And I have to say, like, in these episodes, like, reality is blurred and, like, Mira Harburg herself becomes a spirit. And I loved all of that. But this confrontation, which felt to me, like, in a sense, the climax of the series was just so, uh, you know, anticlimactic and sort of sentimental. And in a sense, I can understand why, like maybe it was a projection of Mira Harburg slash Alicia Vikander herself, like receiving a kind of blessing from Maggie Chung. But that, I wish that had been more complicated because the answers that the Jade Lee character provided were just so simplistic you know about how um Irma Vett was never really a French icon and I I just something very simplistic and sentimental and also this belief that people had have in the characters have that Rene Vidal who kind of drops out of the show because he has a meltdown that he must return to it that it is his you know his project he's he must reintroduce its spirits the spirits of Irma Vep and Le Vampire to this show it all felt a little simple and sentimental, and I don't know if the show justified why he had to return. In fact, when that Herman character, who's Mira's ex's like husband, who's like some kind of newbie Marvel director, takes over, I was really excited to see like how they would map out these differences because the show has this 
interesting balance between it does have like the understanding that directors like Herman's are shills and they're not making interesting cinema, but it's also not condescending to that cinema, right? Like it recognizes that there's something there that's like pushing maybe movies forward in a way that traditional auteurs aren't. And all of that just fizzled out for me a little bit. I'm glad you mentioned sentiment because that haunts the show, right? And that has to do with the thing that I think, you know, I, I'm, I often when I write about movies, I, I think, you know, there's a fine line between archetypes and cliches, right? And there's a fine line between things that are really hackneyed and things that come up a lot because this is just the nature of the beast, right? So it's a kind of a cliche to say that as directors get older, they kind of become more sentimental there's more life experience they're looking back on more there's less in front of them right you feel that in this show how can there not be emotion when you're talking about a past project he's right as i say as reckoning with his whole past career maybe you know the the slightly narrowed horizons facing him going forward both in terms of his age and the state of the industry that scene that you mentioned uh, is one of the only scenes that i think the show becomes like a ventriloquist act for him in a way that is sentimental and a little, uh, a little unnatural, but it's also so, you talk about the layers, it's so part and parcel with what the show's take on writing and directing is in the first place, which is you do create these little ventriloquist puppets to air whatever. And when we feel like it's Rene Vidal doing that within the show, that's one thing. I think when we feel that it's maybe Assayas doing it and staging this conversation between Irma Vep's past and present, which is really quite convivial and congenial and no one's mad at anybody. I tend to read that scene in terms of maybe all the anxiety and neurosis that it's repressing. Like, why does he feel a need to include that scene? I think it's because I think he can't really imagine a conversation like that, literally or figuratively going all that well. And that's why the very last moment, which again, we, I, I still feel like treading lightly on spoilers because maybe this isn't a show with a mass audience yet. But I mean, you want to talk about sentimental and you want to talk about unguarded you move from one incredibly iconic, famous former partner, filmmaking collaborator to what feels like a direct address possibly to another one. And that's not meant as gossip and that's not meant as, to be inappropriate to bring up, but as the Rene Vidal character talks at the end, he's now speaking to another partner and he commenting on someone who's left behind and how are the kids doing and whatever else. You wanna talk about autofiction and the second part of SAS's career and his other very well-known filmmaking, you know, significant uh, other, especially considering Mia Hansen Love in Bergman Island creates a character played by Tim Roth, who absolutely, I mean, you, I mean, I don't know if anyone caught this in, in Bergman Island, but when you see Tim Roth sketching, he's sketching fetish wear and, and, and bondage, you know, which is a common thread in a lot of SAS's other mm. films. You know, I joked to a friend that all that Bermavep is missing is the Marvel cut scene at the end of, you know, Mia Hansen Love writing, you know, Bergman Island off in a corner somewhere. But he's not he's not hiding that stuff. He's coming out front with that at the end, too. So sentiment, sentimentality is often kind of a negative word, but I also sort of perceive real emotion in that. And that trumps the cleverness of the show in some ways. I was surprised by the end for something that's kind of so trashy and kinetic and propulsive and also cerebral i was surprised by how moved i i was by that stuff so hmm. i kind of worry about that so i think the nature the like distended nature 
of the serial narrative format. You know, some of SAS's impulses kind of were, were felt a bit more for better or worse. Like, you know, he tends to spell out through the dialogue some of like the more theoretical things that are on his mind, which, you know, his work has kind of been doing for like the past decade. But, you know, here it's, it. I don't know, it, it sometimes to me got a little uh, repetitive, though also, you know, it is kind of exciting in that you don't usually see this sort of conversation play out on, on something like HBO. Um, though I think rewatching some of the episodes, it also had the effect of, of just kind of feeling extremely literal, um, which isn't exactly, I don't know, the, the best experience if this very you know, spiritual character of Irma Vap and like the whole lofty legacy of, of Le Vampire and, and the original Irma Vap, like, like I just wonder if, if the weight of all of that would, would come across for someone that's not familiar with it. Like, does the this stand on its own with what it's able to conjure? Is it able to like, I don't know, capture the like sentiment of the impact of, of those memories for some, like just in and of itself without, you know, you know, necessarily engaging with that because. I don't necessarily hold the show to that standard because mm. the, that kind of homage, and I wouldn't even call it an homage, but the intertextuality is like built into it, right? I mean, mm. this is a show that is about conjuring, uh, like it's literally about conjuring like a historical object. So to me, the question is kind of irrelevant about whether it stands on its own because that's literally not what the show is or is trying to do. It's very much an exercise in, you know, what happens when you take a historical object and treat you know, treat it as like a haunting that you can somehow summon again into the present and like what mm. results come of it. Um, but in terms of like, you know, the I, I, I feel like, Maybe you and I are are getting to something similar, though, which is that in summoning those ghosts, what exactly is it interrogating? It was the question that I found myself asking in the last couple, mm. you know, episodes. And you know, to your point, Adam, I do want to clarify that uh, I don't think sentimental or some sentimentality in itself is a bad thing at all, and I wouldn't accuse the show of that, but. What I thought in the first few episodes was like there was this irony and the the self-referentiality, but there was also real sincerity. I mean, in those therapy sessions that Rene Vidal has, you see like a real woundedness come through and, you know, really grappling with questions that maybe Asayas hasn't been able to answer in his own life. And I really was moved by that. And it wasn't as simple as wish fulfillment. It was really thinking about what it means to wish for certain things. And that, and some of those sequences toward the end, including the, the confrontation I mentioned earlier, did feel like just wish fulfillment and not like didn't go that step further. And I'm also curious, like what both of you think. I couldn't help but think like, isn't this kind of insulting to Maggie Chung? Like if she watches this, that her kind of stand-in has been made into a mouthpiece to say these things. I I don't know, is that even a valid question to consider? I just felt really uncomfortable thinking be, about what situation it puts her in. Be, Beatrice's question about can this stand on its own, it's, it's the correct question. 
And it's a question I guess I'm happy HBO didn't seem to ask itself or be, <laughs> or be overly right. concerned with because, because, it, because it can't. We joked earlier that this is a show for the kind of people who would do a podcast about it. And while that's a bit of an exaggeration, it's a deeply insular show, which suggests, too, how deep a rabbit hole you can go down if you want to. Right. I mean, Beatrice spoke so smartly last time about serials and seriality. And I don't know what you guys made of the like drunk history aspect of Vermavec, where it sort of adds that other layer where now they're not just, you know, they're not just, you know, Vincent McGain and 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 Alicia Vikander, and they're not even Renee and 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 Mira, but they're like literally, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the the filmmakers at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, that's pretty goofy. Yeah. Right. It's an example of not widening the show's appeal, narrow and deep, like a trench. The show is kind of like a trench, you know, it just goes all the way down. And I guess, you know, does it get to the core of anything? But when you were asking the question, you know, about how would, how would Maggie Chung be? I mean, I don't know. He's given interviews where he's sort of said that question is deeply important to him, but he can't ask, right? So that wish fulfillment and that maybe having a conversation with himself, you know, through her, it is pretty blatant, which I would say, I don't know. Doesn't everybody do that? I mean, maybe they don't have an HBO show yeah, where they're able to do yeah, it. I know that, that I, is the that is the crucial factor that everyone doesn't have an HBO show to, no. they, to they, know, they, stage that. They don't. I I guess what I thought. Not I, even I, Maggie I, has that. You know. Well, I mean, no, and but this is what he's choosing to cho- cho- chosen to do with the work. I feel like he's very very specific about certain impulses and and fetishes and like hardline opinions he's very he's not coy about the fact that they belong to him so then we sort of ask that question is that what we want when we watch something do we want a kind of universality that gets away from the fact that a filmmaker owns their opinions or are we thrilled to see a filmmaker own their opinions and own their and, 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 and own their neuroses, whether we agree with them or not. I mean, I really want to know what you guys thought of that fifth episode, which is the one that I thought on a different show would have been essay after essay online about how is the show saying this and what is it saying? But it, it just came and went. Before responding to that, I just want to say that I actually had an ex in college who made a movie about our relationship, a short film <laughs> in college. So I feel an affinity with Maggie Chung. However, he ended up as the bad guy at the end of the movie. And my surrogate character ended up on top. So it's actually a movie I think of very fondly. But while watching Irma Vep, I was like, what if he had like written it in such a way that like my surrogate has had like, you know, kind of blessed him. Or, you know, it was this fantasy of me forgiving him for, you know, being whatever a bad boyfriend or something um anyway we can cut this out but i was just like <laughs> i just <laughs> no leave it in it's good leave it in you know i in. just but it is like the eternal question of autofiction right like do you own other people's lives mm. it's the eternal question of just fiction i guess like how much are your experiences shared with mm. the people you have them with and and when you bring capital into it when you bring like something saleable, something you create, and then you get fame and money or whatever out of. It just becomes mm. sort of complicated. And I think this, we can probably talk about this more when we get to uh, Nathan Fielder <laughs> shortly. <laughs> uh, but Adam, you are talking about the uh, episode where there is um, this bondage style scene that some 
people on Rene Vidal's crew interpret as uh, fetishizing rape. Right? Yeah, well, for, for, yeah, the, the, the moment that sticks with me is in the scene, you know, Irma is being abducted and overpowered. And this is all contextualized in the both versions of Irma that it kind of plays at that, you know, that like deep core hardwired eroticism of that damsel in distress scenario. They Like to Beatrice's point, and she could not be more right. The show pretty literally explains all these things at different times. At one point, they actually have a conversation about whether Musadora as Irmavep is a damsel in distress or if she's a controlling character and she's a little bit of both. But you see Renee directing the scene on the monitor off to the side and he is getting off on it. Clearly, like he's orchestrating it. He's getting off on the fact that the character, not the actress, I guess, the character mm-hmm. is kind of being right. I, I agree with you because it's very indeterminate. Getting off on her being kind of molested while unconscious and he lets it go on for a long time. It's hard to say because his relationship to filmmaking and directing itself seems so fetishistic that it was hard to say for me if he was getting off on the scene. Well, but but it's implied it's implied that he might be, and it's implied that he's done like multiple takes of this. And Vikander is a pretty funny line reading where she's like, I think we got it. Right. And then as the episode goes on, other members in the crew start framing this as like a conversation piece around things that are pretty contemporary. The show doesn't pause to subtitle it or superimpose it and say, this is about consent and this is about, you know, cancel culture and this is about whatever else. But the show is clearly taking those things kind of head on. And I thought that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, through Rene Vidal, SAS seems to be owning certain things for himself. Right, whether these are the things that are supposed to belong to the character or they're supposed to belong to him through the character. I thought that it was like quite an interesting episode in terms of speaking theoretically. And I thought it might make people uncomfortable, upset, which is not an end in and of itself, by the way. I'm not even sure I feel positively about it, but I couldn't believe what I was watching and then thought that there would be more reaction and there just wasn't. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I can't help but see it as a piece of just like these very prevalent French attitudes towards eroticism in film and sexuality in film. I mean, there's this whole like heritage of, you know, the French, the, the national like art of seduction is something that needs to persist in like French culture and art and like artists like Asayas and, and you know, various, honestly, the majority of like the French, you know, establishment of film is kind of like very much champions this attitude and like they like to put themselves sort of in contrast to you know uh the american you know the various to them like obstacles that you know american culture and hollywood and like me too feminism is putting in the way of like this proper expression of seduction which is much more complicated than um you know, the Americans give it credit for. So, you know, I, I actually kind of just saw it um, in those terms. Um, so I, in that sense, I actually didn't even give it that much credit or, or much thought. Um, it was just like SIS weighing in like the rest of, of, of France or a lot of French people. Um, and, and, you know, 
you know, to talk about briefly about the auto fiction. I also, you know, like Davika, I, I didn't find that uh, satisfying, or I found that sort of final encounter with the um, Maggie Chong's forget sort of um, flat. But you know, to Irma Vep's credit, I think the series is so layered and, and straddling so many different things that like I, I very easily was just kind of able to um, you know mentally shut off some of the like auto fiction things I found kind of like whatever and and for me personally kind of focus more on um, what it was trying to say about um, like the idea of, of French cinema today um, as a continuation of you know what it was trying to say and, and the one in, from the 90s and so here you know it, it's of course still very much the product of globalization and an investor interest in a very you know a much more developed way but at the same time I mean I feel like the show like what I found pretty clever about it is you know you see the crew taking out scripts that are still paper scripts. There's like the frugality of, of, of not getting the most expensive hotel for the star. You know, the fact that Irma Vep is, is constantly being dismissed as this crapshoot that's gonna make no money. And, you know, so there's that weird mixture of, of the show being like, yeah, we're behind and, and sort of backwards, um, but almost in like a principled way. It's, it's sort of fraught in its origins, you know, again, tied to this like, big idea of like French national heritage and tradition. Um, but, you know, in, in the case of cinema, and I, I think this is where SIS's head is at, I think it's tied to like his ideal of, you know, what cinema should be, you know, this naive magical encounter with like this spiritual other realm that like is just conjured when like, you know, you pull together a crew and you like create this transformative fantasy. And, you know, I, you know, I've thought of the show very much in context, especially the sort of literal dialogue like explanation parts. Like, and I just thought, well, Asayas is like very much a student of, you know, a certain French tradition of thinking about films. You know, he was involved with Carrière du Cinema in the 80s. This was a time when you had critics like, like Serge Denet, like championing a very expansive idea of how like cinema can structure a separate reality and create discrete realms and universes. And the series and... invokes like uh, Kenneth Anger and uh, yes, and which were exactly. some of the best like moments for me actually in terms of when the series actually uh, yeah spelled out like a vision of cinema. Yeah, right. And it's like you know, despite the fact that this is all clearly a performance that like cinema is immaterial or looking at fake things, you know, it's also like real in a sense and tied to these primordial like feelings and emotions that only this like weird separate reality is capable of manifesting, if well, that makes sense. But, but which is the argument that Rene makes about the, the, the sensitive material, right? He says you have to have the freedom that this is not reality and not only right. that it's not the real world, but that this isn't really happening to people and that the discomfort is encountered in the process of, of art making. I mean, it's sort of the omelet eggs analogy, right? Which has no real corollary to Asayas's practice. He's not considered to be a filmmaker who's had controversial interactions, but at the same time, 
you know, he made the first term of Epis sort of a courtship ritual and, <laughs> you know, kept, kept putting Maggie Chung on screen at different points, you know, before, during and after the dissolution of their relationship. I mean, everything that you said is so true and articulate about, I think, what he's trying to say about cinema, that it is ephemeral and it is conjured and a different reality gets created through all this really granular stuff that is boring and there's drudgery and there's neurosis and then you make something else that's kind of magical. In, in certain moments, it sort of seems to be suggesting that one of the things that makes it magical is that it's not correct, that it's a heightened form of life. It's a heightened experience. I mean, it's, the and, of, it's the field of does make believe, right? right? And that's, mm. yeah, where you can be transgressive without real consequences. Right. And so in the, that episode, which again, to give it its due, it is pretty important what ends up happening, which is the crew kind of basically all ends up saying, you know, well, is Mira okay with it? And I thought that some of Vikander's best acting is where you see this character who is not just an empty suit, right? And she's not just a write-offable starlet. And she's also not just not Maggie Chung, because by that point in the show, we have some sense of Mira's life, her social life, her personal life, her sex life, all of her different lives, right? she kind of grins and swallows how she feels, which I thought was really interesting, where she's sort of like, I want to be on your side because she wants to be on the side of freedom and expression and the project. And she sees that Renee is kind of sensitive, but she, I think within the world of the, the show, she hated doing that. She didn't like being groped like that. She didn't like being put on screen like that. She didn't like feeling like this director who's putting himself to her as a friend and collaborator and co-conspirator and placing her above the other people in the cast and crew, meeting with her in a way he doesn't with everybody else. She is there as like a blank body in that cat suit for him to get off on what's happening. And she knows that. And she doesn't know that autonomously. She knows that because the script is written that way. And that's what I meant by, I thought he was really sort of trying to get at something about himself and about filmmaking practice and it rhymes so much with that intimacy coordinator stuff that runs throughout the show too which the show is pretty sarcastic about yeah. that when you have an int yeah. intimacy coordinator <laughs> intimacy disappears right it's fascinating yeah. I mean I I think Adam you're kind of hitting the nail on the head and I want to use this as a segue to the rehearsal <laughs> just so you know uh that I think there is that kind of enamorment with cinema as something ephemeral, as something immaterial, something magical where anything can happen and it doesn't have to exist in the real world, a space of dreams. And at the same time, this foregrounding of the fact that it is made out of real bodies and labor, like it is a work of real bodies, real labor People And during the end of the series, you see all these scenes of, you know, from Musadora's um, diaries of all the kind of situations, situations she was put into, you know, in order for uh, the in for Le Vampire. And you get a sense of this like precarity and you sometimes get a sense that not that much has changed maybe in the modern day. Like there are, there's much more like legal sort of protection or at least wariness and there are procedures. But, you know, movie making still asks a lot of people's, um, you know, bodies and minds and, and it asks a lot of them emotionally too. And I almost felt like it was, it was kind of surreal watching it you know, after the Rust incident with Alec Baldwin, you know, just um, it's something I was also thinking about while watching Nope, which is another, uh, you know, maybe it's a movie that we might get to as well, in which 
film workers are really foregrounded, right? Like they are the heroes of this narrative. It's like a technician and two horse wranglers and a cinematographer. And it's really about the mechanics of capture. And so to me, that was what was both really interesting about that episode in Irma Vep, but also maybe a little dissatisfying because it definitely brought all of this into play, this idea of, you know, but what about the actual person, like you were saying, Adam? Like, she's not just a blank canvas. She's a person enacting those scenes, being viewed by this director, being made to reenact it. I just wish, I mean, I just wish it had gone a little bit further in exploring those, like, dualities. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day I think it did come off a little bit like what Beatrice said, uh, you know, this kind of very French provocation but also this very French kind of audacity of like going there and you know discussing like uh, the danger and the pleasure of seduction I think it goes farther than that precisely because of what Adam described as like Alicia Vikander's role in that episode but I just wish I just wanted more you know um and which kind of maybe is is a segue to the rehearsal if you guys don't mind uh which is also, there was a lot of debate about this show. And I read Richard Brody's piece, which everyone was talking about. And then I read <laughs> Adam's, two very different pieces. Um, and I agreed a lot more with you, Adam. Like, I think that your I found your piece really fantastic and well-argued. But I also felt that I wanted more, which I'll, I'll ex explain what I wanted more. Not from you, by the way, from the rehearsal. Like I wanted more from the rehearsal than I got. But but I want you guys, you know, maybe Adam, you start us off because um, you already wrote about it. Just what, what you thought of the rehearsal. Uh, I, I am of the mind that there's an episode of Nathan for you that is, I think, one of the best things I've ever seen on television, which is called Smokers Allowed which is the episode where his plan to allow smoking at a restaurant entails the staging of a piece of avant-garde theater where just an evening at the bar get by nature of him putting two seats in the corner becomes a play. And then he becomes obsessed with reproducing and recreating it. Uh, Benny Safdie wrote a piece about that episode for Cinemascope a few years ago, and it was a wonderful analysis by Benny and, you know, starts getting into the territory of, you know, like Borges and uh, the, the novel Remainder. I mean, it's very heady stuff, right? So that's where I'm at with Nathan Fielder, that I admire the design and the ingenuity and the manipulation of it. I think it's very autocritical. And I think it's exceptionally personal in the sense that he's working through a certain neurosis and discomfort that he has. I feel like what the show comes to call in the third episode uh, the Fielder method, which is ostensibly meant as a kind of acting class method, like Stanislavski, who gets mentioned and dismissed in one sentence. Well, there's a part where one of Nathan's acting students is like, have you heard of Stanislavski or Sal Adler? He's like, no, I don't know who those people are, which is very funny, and then moves on. I mean, it's very personal. It's his own neuroses about his inability to interact with other people or have any control on his life, which gets displaced onto these other people. And when Devika mentioned she wanted to do this podcast about Nope and uh, about the rehearsal and Irma Vep, I was like, finally, someone's figured out that they're sort of the same show. I mean, they're HBO giving an awful lot of money to somebody to do something that is like formally and structurally sort of insane. And as neurotically, like, obsessed yeah. and detailed. I mean, I, also, I, I have to say, I have to give Adam credit for this because I invited you to do Irma Vep. 
Then I wanted to add more stuff, and you said the rehearsal, and that was genius. So. No, no, that, I, I, <laughs> I, the one thing I want to mention that I didn't say when I wrote about it, but I've said this to Adam everyone. Adam did a little bit auto fiction here. <laughs> uh, 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 to, to any to anyone who will listen, I'll say this: I watched the rehearsal the night after I saw Thor. I saw like four episodes of the rehearsal on an advance screener that HBO gave me. I happened to go hate watch Thor, which is a horrific movie by a horrific filmmaker Thor <laughs> Levin Thunder. It's awful. But what I thought was that in a Marvel film, for instance, and SAS would have opinions about this too, given the superhero movie criticism that runs through through Irma We are so inured to CGI now that things that are fundamentally on some level miraculous are completely blase. Like Thor is a terrible movie, but it's expensive, right? But on the rehearsal, when he shows us that he has had a bar built in a different city or that extras have been hired to walk through the streets of New York at a particular moment, I'm like, how does someone do this? How much money does this cost? This is the I most mean, spectacular would, production I've really ever seen. I would really like to know how much money it costs. Like, Probably the catering budget on Thor. But my point is that by setting, <laughs> by setting it in the real world and by turning the real world into this kind of tactile special effects spectacle where almost anything can be recreated and reproduced and trust me as the show goes on I had to like stop after one episode to just look at the wall because I did not understand how someone could logistically stage what he ends up doing there's something kind of miraculous about it because it is physical production and I find that the logistics of it as a physical production are not written about nearly enough and are not appreciated nearly enough. It was the same thing on Nathan for you, where it's not just satirizing reality TV or, or criticizing reality TV. It's reproducing it in a way that's kind of stunning. I, I think as a production, the show is hugely underrated. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to quickly give a precis of the show uh, to anyone who may not know. I mean, God, should I even try to do this? Uh Maybe, Adam, you do this since you've written about it. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he ostensibly the first episode of the rehearsal is that Nathan Fielder is at loose ends at the end of Nathan for you. He can't keep himself off television. So he's trying to keep his hand in by helping anxious people rehearse for things that they don't want to do because they think it's going to go badly. If you can think of a more contemporary subject, I'm waiting. I mean, this idea that in real life experience is terrifying and you want to mediate everything and prepare everything. Ostensibly, that's what the show is about. In the second episode, uh, the rehearsal changes and it becomes about a woman who wants to rehearse for motherhood and for adopting a kid. And enough of the show has aired. This isn't a spoiler to say the show kind of then plunks down inside of that. There are digressions and we see other rehearsals and Nathan's got multiple projects on the go, but this woman and her desire to raise kids and then Nathan's desire to help her both for his show and clearly for himself uh, becomes what the show is about. And, uh, Oh, did you say what the first episode is about though? Well, the yeah, first episode, you, you, you guys talk, you saw it. Yeah, I, mean, the, yeah. the, the, Just to, I, I do want to emphasize like the first episode, it's a guy who, lied to his uh, <laughs> trivia mates, like his friends of like 20 years that he plays trivia with every week at a bar. Just one one time accidentally said like, yes, I have a master's degree and then never corrected them. And this like eats away at him. So the whole episode is Nathan helping him rehearse how to, you know, come clean to one particular friend whose reaction he fears. And 
the reason I want to mention this is the stakes are so comically low in this one. <laughs> and then, you know, Adam, the one you're describing where I don't know if the stakes are high, but it is something that feels more, you know, the thing being rehearsed is something that, that you know, is co- the woman is contemplating like a very significant life change. And here it's like, also what the lie is so innocuous like come on like I I was just like that is part of the joke of the episode right yeah. it's such a stupid lie that it's that a man has to rehearse it through all, in all these elaborate ways to do it is just it feels so fake I, I don't mean that as a criticism it's it, I mean it just feels like just invented for Nathan Fielder and our amusement the whole thing yeah I feel like yeah. it's a a kind of uh is a pair with you know just this whole idea of intense trivia people I mean <laughs> like this guy's so you know potentially upset or is like scared about the friend's reaction but then I think towards the end of that first episode you know there's this uh dilemma because I think Nathan sort of finds a way to sort of unconsciously drop the answers to the trivia questions and like feed them to him. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It's a betrayal, but then also just the fact that like, there's this fear that like the main, this main guy will like flip shit and like completely just, you know, turn over the table at the idea that he didn't do a legitimate trivia night, that the answers didn't actually come from him. So. I mean, I, I, I think Nathan for you, genuinely political television show right that underneath all of it the thesis of Nathan for you is that uh you know the capital you know this late capitalist moment is so overwhelming you simply can't compete so Nathan doesn't really help these people compete he shows that in order to even think about competing your plans have to be so circuitous and off to the side that they become about something else and then and then the second subject of Nathan for you is his loneliness He's not really trying to help these businesses. He's looking for something to do and he has no life. So this gaping void of a life, you know, that he, that he doesn't have all his energies and resources get channeled into helping people, but he's not really helping them or it's a very kind of counterintuitive kind of help is like Rube Goldberg's that keep breaking. Right. This show is contextualized by one throwaway line in the pilot, which granted it was the New York magazine profile that filled it in. But in the first episode, he's in the pool with the main guy and they're trying to have an unguarded emotional conversation, which he of course has staged. Right. But at one point he goes, yeah, I was married for three years and it didn't work out. And because Nathan is such a liar, which I think he's called (laughs) so many times over the course of the rehearsal. I don't know if anyone has ever included so much footage of themselves being called a liar and a manipulator, which is one reason that I think Brody's review misses a certain mark. But that was the truth. And, you know, he's so non-public in in terms of the fact that he had this marriage. Everyone's trying to figure out whether Nathan Fielder's thing is a thing. Like, is Nathan Fielder the person the same as the person who he plays on, on, on screen? And, you know, who is, who, who is this person? But the possibility that he's actually using these shows as a kind of self-therapy is pretty, 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 pretty fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think everything you're saying is really fascinating, Adam, and I, like, want to give him credit for it. But there is a part of me that's just like, man, like, I know a lot of socially weird nerdy guys who are like control freaks about things like like 
repertory screenings and like music lists and stuff like that. And I feel like this is like an expanded, just like power trip fantasy of like a person like that. That's also like pretty smart and like given a big budget to like, just like manifest this like weird dream of his where he's at the center. Um, and so I just can't like support it in a weird way either. <laughs> but what you just said is exactly, what you said is exactly correct. So the crucial question then maybe, it's not the crucial question, but like, is it funny? That's the thing. I don't think it's that funny. <laughs> yeah. The, well, this, the first that episode at least, but question, I, yeah. I watched with a friend and I said the first episode of uh, the rehearsal, I was like, eh, whatever. But I'm also kind of a Debbie Downer about comedy in general. Like it's very hard to make you laugh. Um, however, I acknowledge like I've never seen Nathan for you. And I am told that that is like significantly funnier yeah. and more interesting. So I mean, I think that, Adam, you did, in your piece, really got to the heart of, you know, at least what I saw of the rehearsal, which, again, I have also not seen as much as you, and I'm very open to to discovering more, but mm -hmm. that there is this sense of emptiness and loneliness that comes through. And so while watching, I felt pity for Nathan Fielder. I mean, not, <laughs> not pity, but uh, like Beatrice, I know so many men who just like, <laughs> are squirming in their everyday lives, just being around people and, you know, probably do need to rehearse like normal social interactions. And I, I, I really couldn't connect to what Richard Brody said about the show being about Nathan Fielder's, ma Fielder's mastery, because I don't see any mastery in the show, even, <laughs> even at the end of that first episode, when the outcome is positive, I didn't see it as, Fielder affirming his capacity to produce positive outcomes. In fact, I I was like, it probably would have turned out this way no matter what, right? And you get that sense very strongly. Like the show itself is not, I think, self-important at all. It's very much like, this is all nonsense. That guy could have gone and confronted his friend. She'd probably have been completely fine about it. And this is just Nathan being sort of like a little pathetic and thinking that he can somehow be useful and trying to like fill his life, like you said, Adam. There's an entire subculture on Reddit of people who've participated in the show and their experiences and reactions on Nathan for you are not created equal, right? There are people who have said that they were completely flummoxed and confused by the show, not so much explicitly lied to as just when you say you want to be on TV, you're then not given the full truth and you see what airs, right? Like there's an actress in the smokers allowed episode, which has this Marina Abramovic repetition moment where she and Nathan stare into each other's eyes and she tells him he loves him, I think, 15 times in a row in a two-minute period, which is one of the best things I've ever seen on television. It's incredible and tear-jerking and just, there's nothing like it. And she talked about it on the internet and said it was a genuine experience. And there's other people who have said the second Nathan showed up in some costume or with some plan, they knew that this was ridiculous and that they played along, right? The editing of the show flattens all of that out that people function the way the show wants them to that part of Brody's review is correct where he doesn't let you see the seams you you know he, he he doesn't make it clear how much of it's manipulated and how much it's not I would just humbly suggest and not in an up your own ass sort of way but I think truly that is the subject of these shows 
That is the subject of these shows about reality TV. And anyone who thinks any episode of any reality television show that they've ever watched, whether they enjoy it for trashy purposes or not, I can't fathom that people I know watch The Bachelor the same way maybe people I know, I can't, can't fathom that I enjoy Nathan for you. But anyone who thinks that there's like some kind of hierarchy of manipulation here and Nathan Fielder is anywhere near the top, they're freaking kidding themselves. He's actually making a show that's about it. And so I, I, I admire that, even if everything Beatrice just said, I think is so on point about the kind of list making neurotic control freak persona. It's not an attractive one. It's not. No, it's not right. It's yeah. not but I don't think that that Nathan Fielder thinks it is either, which is what that no, I thought the New Yorker article sort of got wrong. But here's the thing. I think the fact that the show doesn't show its seams I don't think is a political failure. You know, I don't think it's sort of this manipulation that maybe is ethically gray, but to me, it's not like ethically, you know, bad. But it is to me a bit of a creative failure. And this is what I was getting at when I was saying like, I wanted more. And again, I should keep repeating the caveat that I have seen one episode, so I don't want to make definitive comments. But, you know... As I was reading Richard Brody's article, a lot of the things that he was saying, like, what if he, you know, made apparent the labor of the people, like uh, the crew that's helping him put all this together? What if he gave us a greater sense of how, like, what are these people's reactions when they learn that they've been had? Or what is even the process? Like, do they have to sign releases? You know, all of this stuff. It just made me wish for a show like this that would actually do that, you know? And... um, I was also thinking about this because I recently had some conversations about documentary ethics. Um, I, you know, I'll keep it vague, but about a documentary that, you know, it was found out that um, uh, many, you know, scenes were sort of manufactured. And this is a documentary about a really political, uh, sensitive political issue featuring uh, real people in sensitive situations. And the filmmaker made the argument that, you know, documentary is still a creative act uh you know manipulation is is part of the act of making a movie and that made me think a lot about like I think that is true and if we let go of that we lose a lot of interesting art but at the same time we have become so conditioned to taking for granted that anything we see on on screen that goes through a certain kind of bureaucratic process is all ethically approved and so while I was in for instance reading Richard's review I was like I mean come on I'm sure he had to get all of them to sign releases because the law requires it and I'm sure they all agreed to be on this and I'm, I'm sure they all thought it was funny but then it did make me pause and think like is that true do I even know how this stuff works enough to know that that's true and wouldn't it be so interesting if a show delved into that the the catchy the catchy little jingle I'll offer is real behavior under deeply false pretenses, right? These are deeply false pretenses on Nathan for you and the rehearsal. And even when the shows pull back sometimes, because there'll be all kinds of very complicit models when it's like, you know, I told them I was doing this. I mean, in the first episode, he says, you know, we got him out of his apartment so we could take scale, you know, photos of it to to, to reproduce it. But this has now kind of become a thing where a character in the second episode, which I know you guys haven't seen, a character who comes off extremely poorly 
let's say, uh, for multiple reasons pertaining to religious faith and driving habits and just his basic way of being. It's a hilarious episode called Scion, which has a double meaning. Uh, it's the name of a car and also the idea of, a, of an heir and a son and a family, which is, I think, what the show becomes about. You know, it's now gone deep online, this guy talking with his experience, and everybody is kind of saying, dude, you're insane just because you didn't know exactly what this television show was. Even his brother went online to be like, yeah, that's my brother. He's a crazy person. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it, it does get into the, those areas, I think, of discomfort. But of course, un until you can prove that these people had guns put to their head to be on this television show, uh, it does not bother me or it does not bother me fully because some of it is interrogated by the show itself. And I know Twitter is not a barometer of real critical opinion, but there have been some very funny tweets that have kind of, you know, interlaced Nathan Fielder's method with Joshua Oppenheimer's method in the act of killing and the look of silence, which is on one level deeply inappropriate and not worth pursuing. And on another level, and on another level, that tweet made me laugh out loud. Like that would be a good Nathan for so episode. Adam, but the question isn't, is it funny? The question is, are there funny tweets about it? Yeah. That's what you're saying. Both <laughs> funny and funny tweets. I want you guys. I want you guys. I want you guys to watch more of it because when it hunkers down in the house, I think it turns into something pretty special. I think. God, we we're gonna have to do a, the rehearsal part though now. <laughs> you know, I think we're almost at the end of the hour, and I know we 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 were going to discuss some other things, but I think that this uh, the Irma web rehearsal just made for a very perfect double build so I'm almost uh hesitant to to topple that but any closing thoughts oh I have one random closing thought not related to the rehearsal sorry to bring it back to Irmavet but in the last episode I just like went off about how terrible Alicia Vikander is and I like still kind of think that to an extent however in the episodes you know since the first four the rest of them um I feel like I sort of understand what he appreciates about her. And it's that she really does come alive when she's like moving and dancing, doing that sort of thing. And I was thinking, you know, about the Tomb Raider movie that she's in. And I was like, you know, she's not bad in that. Like it kind of makes sense that he looked at this actress who was like a pretty good physical performer and is like, well, she's going to embody the uber sensual, like physically, you know, whatever or that. So I kind of get that part of it so so how many times did you rehearse this confession with nathan fielder <laughs> oh but oh, but <laughs> um they 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 they, 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 they are both shows that demonstrate you know the fine points of the, the fine points of rehearsal is something that does have a fixed outcome right and the way that mm. things change from take to take and the way that performances are are, are are modulated almost like that's a really fascinating discussion for both fiction and 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 documentary so thank you so much both of you for the truly wonderful conversation once again very thought-provoking and i'm excited to watch more of the rehearsal adam as, as as you should be. Have a good night. night. Bye, everyone. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
visit us online at filmcomment.com.